When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Vocal Distancing, where we catch up with college play-by-play broadcasters from around the country. My name is Adam Witten. And as a reminder, if you would like to view previous episodes of the show, you can do so in a couple of different ways. All of our shows are on our College Sports Now platform. So you can find College Sports Now as a YouTube channel, find video episodes of all of our previous shows, or you can subscribe to the College Sports Now podcast wherever you enjoy your podcast. As you can see, if you're watching this show and not listening, you can tell that we are joined by another trio of guests from around the country. So let's go around the horn and introduce you to each one. And with our introductions, gentlemen, I will ask you to answer the following two-part question, which is one, how are you? How are you and yours in terms of your health and safety right now? And then two, I want to know if you've picked up any interesting skills or hobbies in this time of quarantine since we've all been at home most of the time over the last two months. So we'll start with the voice of the Virginia Tech Hokies, John Laser. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Adam. Uh, great to be with you guys as always. First things first, not to get off your format, but I'm always intimidated of Paul's voice. And now I've got to be intimidated by his beard too. So <laughs> I appreciate you making this be a visual medium for everybody. Uh, we're doing fine, man. The wife and I are actually celebrating our anniversary today in Blacksburg and they had uh, not graduation ceremony this past weekend, but a lot of the graduates were able to come back and take pictures and be around town as the state started reopening. So a shred of normalcy, but we've just been quarantining here right in downtown Blacksburg and just going out for walks and just getting around campus. It's kind of nice because we basically live on a big nature park here on the Virginia Tech campus. So that's been good. Uh, at the beginning of the quarantine, I was pretty ambitious in terms of cooking and we went back and forth nights and I was learning a, a few new dishes and I'll be honest, that's just really waned as this has gone on week to week to week. 
That's John Laser. He's the voice of the Virginia Tech Hokies. Now let's go to Salt Lake City. Bill Riley, the voice of the Utah Utes. Bill, how are you? Adam, I'm great. Uh, thanks for the invite. Paul, John, good to see you guys. Uh, you too. I'm good here in Salt Lake City. It's, it's uh, you know, as far as parts of the country where COVID has been very impactful, I'd say we've been pretty lucky out here in the Intermountain West. Utah's done a pretty good job the jump. Um, I'm sure like my cohorts here, I was at a conference basketball tournament and our friends with the Utah Jazz just down the road from where I'm sitting right now kind of started the dominoes falling, but we were, uh, we were in Vegas and got back and kind of self-quarantined, two kids home from college. So that's been challenging. Well, one from college, one from high school, doing studying at home. So that's, that's been a, a bit of a challenge. Uh, did my radio, I do a daily radio show here in Salt Lake City. So I'm, I just got off the air a bit ago. I, I'm a midday radio host. And so I did that from home for a couple of months. Now you can see I'm back in my office again, and we're getting back to a little bit of normalcy here in, in Salt Lake City, which is good. And so getting some positive news and hopefully we have more positive news as day goes, uh, days go along. But as far as things I've perfected, I, I, I did the cooking thing like John. I'm an adequate chef. I'm very good with my, my smoker. Uh, but you can only eat so much smoked meat all the time. But I, I've got really good. I was always good at yard work. I would now say that I could probably open up my own lawn and garden company. I've done so much work on my yard over the last couple of months. So that's probably what I've perfected more than anything else. All right. Very good. And our, our third, last but certainly not least, our guest from Ohio State, the voice of the Buckeyes and the masterful beard, Paul Keels. How are you? Adam, I'm good. First off, John, uh, happy anniversary to you and your wife. Uh, congratulations Thank you. on that. Uh, and like Bill, I'm still doing what I would normally do this time of year, uh, doing uh, top of the hour afternoon drive sports updates for our flagship station, 97.1 The Fan, as well as sportscasts for the Ohio News Network, the difference being doing them from home. Uh, but uh, all good here. The only uh, family concern, if you want to say that, uh, this coming weekend on Saturday, my mother turns 89 years old. You'd think she was 70. Uh, she lives in Las Vegas, but because of uh, the quarantine and travel restrictions, unfortunately, I'm not able to get out there and see her. I do have two siblings that live there, so they're going to ring number 89 in a good way. Uh, as far as any new skills or anything, like Bill was saying, I, I usually do a lot of cooking when I'm home, so I've done a lot more of that. Fortunately, this video only shows from the shoulders up to uh, not show the extended damage from that, but very fortunate to live in a, a neighborhood uh, about Three and a half, four years ago, I moved in an area just outside of downtown Columbus with a bunch of new homes that were built. Um, used to be an old area with a factory and not a very good area with the gangs running around in it, but uh, a lot of uh, couples and professionals that have moved here. And uh, while everybody's been, most everybody's been working from home, we've had a lot of social distance gatherings from front porch to sidewalk. Uh, a guy a few doors down had his garage redone to make it a year round room, and he's got a uh, fridge full of adult beverages in it. So been able to do a lot of socializing with my neighbors. All right, very good. Well, if, um, if, if you're a regular viewer or listener of this show, you'll hear some questions that we asked to, to these three gentlemen that, that we ask in all of our shows. We've got a couple of new topics. You know, one of the, the interesting things about doing these shows and talking to people from, from their homes or their offices uh, at home is some of the things that we see in the backdrop. Um, some of the, the photos and the memorabilia and the souvenirs and the things they've acquired over a career of following, watching sports. And so 
let, let's, let's go back in time a little bit. I want to ask each of you, and Bill, let's start with you. Tell me your favorite sports memory from your childhood. Maybe it has to relate. Maybe it relates to something that's currently on your wall behind you right now, or maybe it's not. But what, what is your favorite sports moment from your childhood? Well, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Kansas City, and we were lucky enough through my dad's company to have Kansas City Royals season tickets um, throughout my childhood. So uh, it's hard to imagine now for many people that are longtime baseball fans, but there was a time when the Royals were really good, really good consistently. And uh, my worst memories and best memories kind of came early in my childhood when you're forming your fan, formative fan years. But um, I was lucky enough to be there in, uh, in 1980 when the Royals were able to vanquish the Yankees for the first time in the playoffs. And uh, then in 85, my brother and my dad and I were there uh, for game six and game seven of the World Series. Uh, the famous Don Denkinger game, we were there for that game and we were there for game seven as well. And ironically enough, uh, and I don't know that it could happen today, but game seven was played on a Sunday and the Chiefs and the Royals share a parking lot in Kansas City in the Truman Sports Complex. And they sit side by side. And in the afternoon, uh, the Chiefs played a football game. And that evening, the Royals played game seven. And we walked across the parking lot. We went to the Chiefs game in the afternoon and then game seven of the World Series that night. And so that was probably one of my fondest memories of, 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 of being a sports fan. And I got to share it with my dad and my brother that day, that day in 1985. Paul, what about you? Well, I'll uh, make reference to one of the jerseys that's hanging in the back. Um, the Cincinnati Royals were an NBA team that, that I followed as a kid growing up in Cincinnati. And they left after the 71-72 season and moved to Bill's hometown, Kansas City. They're now the Sacramento Kings. Uh, but I was a big fan of the Royals. Listened to them on the radio a lot. This is back in the days when you didn't have a ton of games that were on TV. And the Royals at that time, Bob Cousy was the head coach. Uh, they had a draft uh, the next to last year in Cincinnati where they drafted Nate Archibald and Sam Lacey. And, and a lot of uh, the exposure that, that I had, my brothers and my friends, was listening to the games on the radio. And the Royals had an announcer by the name of Dom Valentino. And he went with the team to Kansas City. Uh, but many years later, when I uh, ended up starting to broadcast games for the Cincinnati Bearcats in the newspaper interviews, mentioned Dom's name and uh, a few weeks later I heard from him. He had moved back to his hometown in New York City and uh, had an occasional Ohio State went to New York City to play St. John's to meet Dom for dinner. As kids we used to go up in the perch where the radio announcers were and get his autograph and tell him how we listened to the game so much. So uh, the Royals were the last two years after they traded Oscar Robertson whose jersey that is it's a replica jersey hanging back there. After they traded Oscar Robertson they really became a, a very mediocre team and ownership was very devious in the way they went about things to drive their profit margin down to get them to move. Uh, but that was a big part as well as growing up following the, the Cincinnati Reds and seeing the big red machine and, and the early years of the Cincinnati Bengals when Paul Brown was there. Funny story about that, just to piggyback and I'll let John get there. My dad grew up in Cincinnati, Paul, and he was also a Royals fan. Yeah. And there was a guy named Joe Axelson who ran the Royals and then ran them in Kansas City. And the, second, the last year they were in Kansas City, there were already rumors about him doing the same things to get them to move then to Sacramento. And he called my dad because he was a Royal season ticket holder to try and get him to buy Kansas City Kings season tickets. My dad said, 
long as you're a member of the organization, I will never buy Kansas City Kings season tickets because I was a Cincinnati Royals fan and you took them out of Cincinnati. So I'll never buy tickets from you, Joe Axelson. Yeah, he was the villain that took the team away from Cincinnati. And, uh, you know, even all these years later, uh, his name still brings up some pretty rough emotions. Yeah. Lays, what you got? Yeah, mine uh, also centered on baseball like Bills. I grew up a Chicago Cubs fan. And in 1989, we moved from that area to Minnesota. And I was pretty sad, of course, about having to leave all my friends and not be uh, where the Cubs were. But that really started my love of broadcasting because I basically had a daily relationship with Harry Carey and Steve Stone. But I remember my grandfather was a pastor in the Chicago suburbs and somehow when the Cubs in 89, when they were led by Sandberg and Grace and Jerome Walton and Dwight Smith, who finished 1-2 in the Rookie of the Year that year, into the playoffs, they were matched up with the Giants in the NLCS. And my grandfather was able to secure two seats to game two at Wrigley Field. And I'll never forget my dad driving me down there. Uh, it was the only game in the series that the Cubs won. They scored six runs in the first inning. They lost the series. Will Clark just absolutely single-handedly destroyed them in that series and was NLCS MVP. Uh, two things about it. On the way home, driving back to Minnesota, I remember my dad got food poisoning, and we had to stop at a hotel, and I was basically watching him. I was nine years old uh, and just being terrified on the way back, but then Many years later, when I was working in the Giants organization, Will Clark, who I had despised all of my life, I figured he was the biggest jerk that there ever was. You know, he crushed my boyhood dreams. That was the best Cubs team that they had until a decade later. They didn't make the playoffs again until 1998. He was a roving instructor in the Giants organization. He came into Richmond. And he was also a guy who wouldn't mind hanging out a little bit after the game. So we're having a couple of uh, beers following a Richmond Flying Squirrels game. And he's sitting on the ground and I'm sitting on the ground. And I'm telling him that story about how much my dad and me hated him uh, when I was a kid. And he took it in stride. Um, and the night progresses. I call my dad on the phone and I say, hey, there's somebody who wants to talk to you and apologize. And I put Will Clark on the phone and I have no idea what was said back and forth, except at the conclusion of the call, Will Clark said, with all due respect, and he was laughing, he was joking, with all due respect, uh, Mr. Laser, go expletive yourself. <laughs> That's tremendous. There, there's just sometimes you, you just can't get past those memories, no matter how nice someone can be. But he's a, he's a fantastic guy. Yeah. He led to a friendship down, down to spring training. A couple of years later, I was out and about and he came up and tackled me from behind he's an awesome dude so i, I think sometimes it was a reminder or a lesson yeah. i guess that uh just because they're on the opposite team and you, you you can't stand them when you're kids they're more often than not great guys anyway yeah yeah all right let, let's let's move the timeline forward a little bit and get into your your professional careers um curious to find out what was your first experience broadcasting speaking into a microphone where other people were listening to you um paul let's start with you well i went to college at xavier university in cincinnati and our student station broadcast um high school football games in the uh, greater catholic league which was uh the, the league that i had grown up in i'd gone to cincinnati moeller high school and we did the uh, gcl game of the week and so those were 
uh, the first games I did during the high school football game, but the first game that I was at, I was not on the air. Uh, the, the guy who was the same age as me that organized a lot of that uh, had me go with him to kind of see what was going on. And I spent the first game that I was at in any capacity with my student station, <clears throat> standing on the roof of the press box, holding a directional antenna for the whole game, keeping it pointed in the direction of our studios at Xavier University. After doing that, I told him, uh, I'm not doing that anymore. If uh, you're going to get me involved, I would like to be able to involve doing something on the air, not being an antenna. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, how about you? Well, I, I went to the University of Kansas, and I was fortunate enough to have a gentleman by the name of Tom Hedrick as one of my professors. And Tom did the Cincinnati Reds uh, back in, I think, the late 60s, early 70s, before he came back to the Midwest. And he was a great professor, and he used to make us go out and get our old Morantz tape recorders, and we would go to Lawrence High School, the Lawrence Chelsea Lions, and we would all, half of his class, we'd all be sitting in the stands with our spotting boards doing play-by-play -play tape recorders, and then we'd bring them back to him for Monday class. He'd evaluate us in front of class. But the first time I probably did it on the air was with our student radio station, KJHK, in Lawrence. Uh, they would put us on the roof of the press box at Memorial Stadium, in Lawrence. And this was when Kansas was actually pretty good. Glenn Mason was the coach then back in the late eighties and early nineties. And we would sit on the top of the press box with all the photographers and the cameras. And we had our little card table and our Marty unit set up. And luckily the student radio station was about a block up the hill from the stadium. So we had a pretty clear shot and we would sit up there rain, shine or otherwise. And we would do Kansas football games. In fact, I did one in an ice storm one day with a guy named Trey Bender, whose father, Gary, was very big in the business. Trey's a play-by-play -play broadcaster as well. And we did it in an ice storm the day a guy named Tony Sands set the NCAA record for uh, rushing back in 1991 against Missouri. So uh, first experience was with KJHK Radio in Lawrence, if you don't count my Morant's tape recorder on Friday nights at Lawrence High School. <laughs> Well, right when Bill said Marty right there, Adam, I'm like, yep, it's going to segue nicely into my story. Uh, my first play-by-play -play job was with a summer collegiate team up in St. Cloud called the St. Cloud River Bats. They're now the St. Cloud Rocks, one of the long lists. That's how you guys know when you're in the business for a while, when you've worked for three or four defunct teams. Um, but uh, before the season, they said, well, we've never heard this guy before. We think he's okay. Uh, let's Let's have him practice on a – high school baseball game in the St. Cloud, Minnesota area. So I, you know, I drove up there and really had no idea how to set the equipment up. It was that old Marty uh, where you had the standing antenna that you had to have a guy carry in for you uh, if you were so fortunate and would plug into that case. But the problem, the Marty's great, by the way, extremely reliable, uh, still would use one if I had it. But the problem is there's no talkback feature. And um, you know, this was before we'd figured out texting and, and all certain things like that to communicate easily. So I had this walkie talkie that I was supposed to be communicating with the producer with. Well, I'm sure it was human error on my part or hers or both, uh, but nothing on the walkie talkie. I have no idea. Can't get a hold of her. Um, so I have no idea if I'm on the air or not. But when the game started, I just started talking and just kept going. And I had no idea for a couple of hours whether I was on. And then ultimately after the game, I got a hold of the producer and she's like, that was fantastic. Great job. We loved it. And it was like this big exhale. 
But uh, along the same lines, very similarly after that, or very shortly after that, I was doing a high school football game. And we did the same school every week. It was Ricori High School. And it was actually where uh, Eric Decker, who went on to play in the NFL for the Broncos and the Jets and the Titans, uh, played. So we had a mounted Marty antenna on top of their press box. If anyone is from, if you guys are familiar with that, but then you just drop the cord down, you can plug in, you don't have to lug around the big thing. Well, there's a lightning strike across town in the third quarter of this playoff game. All the lights go out at the football stadium, um, stops the game and whatnot. They deem it irreparable. And so everyone's just scurrying around. What are you going to do? They're you know getting people out of there. Well, I guess the Minnesota State High School League said it's a playoff game. You have to finish it. You can drive across town and finish it at another school who had had a playoff game and they had since finished because they both started at seven o'clock. So my color guy, who's also a, a TV guy, or a, excuse me, a teacher at the school decides that's enough for him. He's going to call it a night. So he doesn't make the trip across town. I do, but now we no longer have uh, our Marty atop the press box. So anyway, long story short, we had a FM uh, van that was covering the game as well from one of the pop stations they had a Marty mounted on top of their van. So we unscrewed that from the van, carried it up to this other school, taped it to the window uh, and got the job done. And oh, by the way, upon the resumption of the game, it was 49 to nothing, uh, but we had to finish it. <laughs> Those high school football stories are always some of the best. Um, uh, not, not to get into a longer story, but I had one where a game got postponed because someone stole the copper wiring out of the lights to turn the lights on at the stadium, got to about kickoff time. The lights weren't cutting on. They were cutting on. We're killing time. We're killing time. And all of a sudden they make a PA announcement that said tonight's game has been postponed. We had no idea why come to find out someone was trying to make a buck, stole the copper wiring out of the lights to, um, in the, from the box to, to, to get them to, to, uh, to fire up and, couldn't get the lights on, couldn't play the game. Wasn't a playoff game, so they didn't move it to another stadium, though, Lace. <laughs> well, the best part of those games for me, my first job out of college was in Hastings, Nebraska. And I'd gone to the University of Kansas, and I, I, had, I didn't know a soul. And we got hired by a little AM station up there. And uh, it's Tom Osborne's hometown. And there were three little high schools in the town. And the, Hastings College was there where Osborne did his undergrad. But they hired me and another guy to replace a guy who had been there 25 years, who was this local legend who they fired. And they didn't tell us, I'm fresh out of college. This other guy's fresh out of college. They split the old guy's salary and brought us both in. We both thought we were the guy. And then we arrived there and, they're, you know, they're paying us like $11,000 for the year. And we're doing production and we're doing sales and we're doing, yeah. we're going out and doing these high school games and, we don't have any idea. We're not from this area. We're both from the Midwest. So we would try, they'd say, well, your, your, your game's in Wood River, which was 12 miles away. We don't know Wood River, but we would pull up in the town in the station vehicle. And basically you're in rural Nebraska. You just look for the lights. The three big, the two biggest things in the town are the silo <laughs> and the football lights. So this was, you know, this was pre-internet. This was 1992. It was maps. Al Gore hadn't invented the internet yet. So we, we basically, you would ask directions or you would just look for the lights and we would pull up in town and look for the lights and we would do color and play by play and swap. But we didn't have any idea where we were, what we yeah. were doing. Just show up, you know, you'd call the day before and they'd fax you a roster. You'd hopefully make your 2D, but it was, uh, 
But I always tell people that's where you cut your teeth, whether it's minor league baseball or high school football. And I, you know, I, you know, Tom knows and some other people. I went to Moberly, Missouri after that and had a good time there doing high school. But I wouldn't trade that stuff for the world because those are things where you learn the business. And, you know, today we're, we're a whole lot luckier and we're in much bigger venues. But I remember rolling into some of those little high school towns. And when you showed up in the station car, you were the biggest thing, man. And, and it was yeah. funny how the next day, Saturday morning, the station would get flooded with phone calls that or Monday morning. They would all want copies of the game. The parents would all call because they'd want to, you know, their son scored a touchdown the night before. Can you make me a cassette copy of the game? Because my little Johnny had a touchdown. I wanted to hear what it sounded like. Yeah. It was fun. Man, I was relating to that, Bill. Yeah, that's exactly what I used to do. I'd just drive in, look for the lights after I stopped at Taco yeah. John's, of course. But I don't ever recall getting a roster the day before. No. Our schools were – I would always get it walking in. Yep. When I got here, and Paul was actually here for the first game I did here, I was struggling with all the uh, extra things you have, like a spotter and a statistician and engineers and all this stuff. Because, yeah, that's what it was. You get the roster, you tape it to the wall on the side of you, and you would just essentially try to go as fast as you could from the field to the roster uh, and call the game. But I, it's still high school sports, football in particular, it's still by far the most fun that I've ever had. And like Bill's point, you were a big deal. I just remember we'd go down to the – local uh, watering hole right there and you couldn't you know buy a drink in town they, yeah. they just it was awesome it was so communal yeah yeah those are cool stories i appreciate you guys sharing those um so now again let's 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 fast forward again now to to where you are now um at your respective schools and i, I want to know what's the most memorable game that you've called for the school where you are right now you guys may have experience whether it's high school or other stops that you've had could be in baseball like like Lays was talking about but specific to the school where you are right now what's the most memorable game that you've called Paul we'll start with you well I'd have to say the uh, 2002 national championship game for football Ohio State kind of went through the whole regular season with cliffhangers uh, in some cases with barely hanging on to win games and they beat Michigan, uh, get the invite, and this is pre-conference championship, pre-divisions. <clears throat> they get the invite to go to the Fiesta Bowl. Uh, this was early in the BCS days, and they're going to play for the national championship. But I had to wait two weeks to see if Miami was going to remain unbeaten. The Hurricanes, I think, had Syracuse and maybe had Virginia Tech that they still had to play. Uh, but they ended up winning both of those games. Uh, long, long layoff between the end of the Michigan game and the national championship game in Tempe. And Ohio State goes in, I think, 11-point underdogs. Miami really had things rolling, as everybody knows, and, and the Buckeyes were able to win that game in double overtime. Uh, you know, there's the controversial pass interference call in which for a few seconds we thought the game and the season was over, but uh, it worked out well in Ohio State's case, and uh, they end up winning a national championship, the first since uh, the Woody Hayes team at 68. So I would say that along with the 2007 Ohio State basketball team that played in the national championship game and lost to Florida. Lays, what about you? Yeah, I think it, it had to be the Sweet 16 basketball game we had last year against Duke. Uh, for a number of reasons. One, just because Virginia Tech basketball has for so long 
uh, I don't want to call it irrelevant, but certainly hasn't been on the national scene. It's definitely not a, a blue blood program. And Buzz Williams was such a character in terms of building the story around that team as he built that program. So we also had um, the sub story that we knew he was leaving <laughs> as soon as we lost in the tournament. And that obviously wasn't public knowledge, but within the program, uh, we were about 99.9% .9 sure that that was going to happen. So we'd been building to that moment for a while and we got through the San Jose portion and got to the Sweet 16. First time Virginia Tech had ever made it that far. And then, of course, you line up with Duke, who had R.J. Barrett and, most importantly, Zion Williamson. And it was in Washington, D.C., which is essentially a massive Virginia Tech hub. So the electricity around the building that night just walking in was something I hadn't experienced, particularly for basketball, and, and was just amazing. And being a little bit more slanted to the basketball side before I got here, it was gratifying because everyone had said, you know, Virginia Tech football will be an amazing experience, but basketball will not rival it. Uh, and that was kind of the arrival of it doing so, particularly from the relevance within our fan base. And then it was an epic game, which unfortunately we lost uh, with a, a missed tip in from the front of the rim or not tip in just a missed short range shot from the front of the rim with time expiring from a med hill and duke survives to take on michigan state but i will say this is the first time i've seen paul since my first ever game here at virginia tech and that's still the most memorable game because of course virginia tech had beaten ohio state the year before up at the horseshoe then ohio state wins the national championship you guys were coming back loaded paul uh weren't sure who the quarterback was going to be whether it's going to be cardale or braxton going into that game i of course was following bill roth and, and all that went with that uh it was just it was good labor day night it was the only game going uh, didn't know who my engineer was going to be, wound up being Chris Ferris. <laughs> uh, I hadn't met a couple of the guys on my crew, and then Paul rolls in, and he's got the national championship ring on, and I'm just like, wow, here, here it is. Uh, and it was a pretty good game for a half, Paul. I was actually talking, I was doing one of these Zoom interviews yesterday with uh, Michael Brewer, our quarterback, who got knocked out of that game in the third quarter, and uh, Ohio State kind of rolled from there. Funny you bring that up, because when Urban Meyer got to Ohio State, he talked a lot about wanting to have a lot of night games. And what he really meant was night home games. Well, as popular as Ohio State got, they were getting more than their fair share of night games. And after that one in Blacksburg, and it was a Monday night, and anybody that's been there to Lane Stadium, you know the, the traffic congestion getting to the airport in Rono. Um, the next day when he had to do his weekly press conference on a Tuesday that normally would have been a Monday, he kind of called himself out for it. I'm the one that ran my mouth, basically saying, ask for all these night games. And fortunately, the very next week, they had a short week, and they were getting ready for a bad Hawaii team next week. Uh, for me, it, it's been interesting because Utah's traditionally been thought of over the years as a basketball school. And it, it took when I took over, basketball wasn't in a great spot. When Rick Majerus was here, basketball was, was king. But when Urban Meyer took over and I was doing uh, his coaches show in pre and post game at the time. Uh, Urban made Utah football cool. I've always said that Ron McBride built a foundation here. Urban made it cool and Kyle has built upon it, but those were some fun years, but I wasn't doing play by play just pre and post game and coaches show uh, during the Fiesta bowl years, but I was here for the advent of the PAC 12 and there's been no bigger influence on Utah football over the years than when they got the invitation in 2010 to join the PAC 12. It's getting the invitation to the country club. You know, the difference between group of five and power five is it's unless you've lived it, 
it, it's really immeasurable. So Utah got the invitation. And, and as you guys know, Utah football has always been, you know, good under McBride and Urban and, and Kyle. But the difference between playing a group of five scheduled week in and week out in the Power Five, it's a depth of talent issue. And Utah's always had great frontline talent, but it took a couple of years to recruit to get that, that kind of that second line talent. But they've, they've had a lot of great wins, back-to-back Pac-12 South championships, haven't quite been able to get over the hump. But the first really big plant the flag win, because there were some people around the country that wondered if, if Utah was really deserving of a Pac-12 invitation. You know, Colorado was a big eight school, so they were already kind of a power five school. But in 2013, a couple of years in, uh, they hosted number five Stanford at, at Rice-Eccles Stadium, and that was Kevin Hogan and Ty Montgomery, and they, they were loaded. They were the fifth-ranked team in the country. Um, it was one of David Shaw's first years after Harbaugh had left, and it was a late afternoon game, which we don't get a lot of anymore out here, but it was like a, a 2 o'clock start time. It was a beautiful day. Utah was good, but they weren't ranked quite yet. And their talent level was good, but it wasn't what Stanford was. But they played unbelievable. It was a sellout crowd. They, you know, early sellouts. They've had 80 straight now, but it was, it was a great day. And Utah's toe-to-toe with Stanford the whole game. And then they, you know, Stanford marches down for the game-winning touchdown. And they have three cracks at it inside the five-yard line. And Utah breaks up all three. And they end up winning the game. And it was kind of that defining moment like, okay, yeah, we, we kind of deserve to be here. It was one of those plant-the-flag signature wins for Kyle, and they've had a bunch of them since then, but that was the first one in, in kind of the Pac-12 era. And as far as basketball goes, kind of along with what John was saying, they played Duke at Madison Square Garden, which is, as you guys know, a de facto Duke home game. We all know they love scheduling those games in New York. It was a one-off Madison Square Garden day. It was ironically the same day as the Vegas Bowl. And Utah was playing BYU in the Vegas Bowl later that day, which is a huge rivalry game, which they weren't supposed to be in, but they kind of tailed off at the end of the year. So I can't be in two places at one time, and we had already made the reservation. So I'm at Madison Square for a noontime tip for Utah Duke, and they had a beat, uh, which was pretty cool. It was my first game I'd ever broadcast at Madison Square Garden, and it was Utah against Duke, and Duke's ranked seventh or eighth in the country, and Grayson, Grayson Allen and those guys, and they beat them. So that was – that was kind of a fun basketball day for me being at Madison Square. Yeah, I, I love your story about the, you know, the, 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 the moment in time for a program where we all believe this program belongs at this stage. Those validating wins um, yeah. just mean so much to, to, a, to a fan base, to a culture. To, um, so that was a really cool story about, about Utah football when it jumped to the, to the Pac-12. Um, okay, let's take it from games now to, to individual players. Do each of you have an answer to the question, a, a, a singular person that is the best athlete that you've ever covered? Lays? Yeah, I have to go back to my baseball days for that. Um, I think we've got some young guys, Tremaine Edmonds, who's in the NFL right now, that might ultimately take that mantle. But It'll be Andrew McCutcheon for me. I had him when I was in Altoona back in 2007. Uh, and the guy, just watching him, if he hit a ball in the gap, get from home plate to third, if it was a triple, was just one of those things where it was poetry in motion. And it was the same way out in center field, off the ball off the bat. You know, he was the easiest play-by-play center fielder of all time because you knew when he was going to get there, even if it was going to be a spectacular catch. And he was only 20 years old at the time. And, uh, you know, to add to that, the the San Francisco Giants teams that, that won a couple of World Series, they won three 
three actually, but they won two with a lot of the guys that I had with me in Richmond, which was cool. They're probably not on that list of phenomenal athletes, but Brandon Crawford, who's a gold glover with the Giants, Joe Panic, who was his double play partner uh, on that last World Series run, and Brandon Belt. They were all with the with the Flying Squirrels in Richmond when I was there. So the list kind of goes on in terms of the the baseball guys. Uh, that we had seen. Nikhil Alexander-Walker from Virginia Tech is probably the, the best basketball athlete that we've had since I've been here. Paul, what about you? Well, you got a lot, football, got a lot to choose from. <laughs> yeah, well, in just limiting it to Ohio State for football, um, I'm going to go with Troy Smith, who won the uh, Heisman Trophy back in uh, 06. And Troy was a guy that when he came to Ohio State, he was recruited as an athlete, not having a position. And as a redshirt freshman, he ended up being used as a kick returner. But then uh, going into 2004, he was alternating the quarterback position, took over at the end of that season. And in 05 and 06, you could see not only a great passer, a great running threat, but Troy had a way of making players around him better and was part of that great 2016 that ended up going to the national championship and losing to Florida. And for basketball, it's one that would probably surprise you guys. Most people would think, you know, during my 23 years, I'd pick Greg Oden, Scooney Penn, Mike Conley. But I'm going to throw out a name, David Lighty. And David was the guy who was on the 07 uh, national runner-up team, a uh, team that won the NIT the year later. David came from Cleveland, and, and as a freshman, uh, he handled the ball like it was a hand grenade. He was a turnover machine, but he got so much better, uh, and he could affect the game both offensively and defensively. And uh, Thad Mata used to talk about how they – they probably needed to build a statue outside of the Schottenstein Center of David Lighty just because of the overall effect that he could have on both sides of the floor. You've got a bunch of young broadcasters all writing down the phrase, handled the ball like a hand grenade that they're going to put into their repertoire. <laughs> Not so young. Yeah, well, including the, the other three of us. Absolutely. <laughs> that is a great way of putting it. Bill, what about you? Uh, for me, I'll go back to my high school days and my very first job out of college. Um, one of the suburbs of Hastings, Nebraska was a little town called Wood River, Nebraska. And the, the fall that I was there uh, in Nebraska doing my first job out of college, um, there, was a, there was a player by the name of Scott Frost. You guys may have heard of him. He now happens to be the head coach at Nebraska. He was running a single wing offense that his mom and dad where his, his dad was the head coach, his mom was the offensive coordinator, and she was the brains of the operation. She called all the plays. Wood River was unbelievable. It was like a two-way, tiny little school, but they were under, and we did like four of their games that year, and Scott Frost was the quarterback. He was the running back. He was the linebacker. He was the safety. He was everything, and they ran over everybody, and it was pretty impressive to see him. And then, he, of course, he went on. He started at Stanford. He, he kind of shunned Nebraska, which was a big deal in the state, went out to play for Bill Walsh, and then came back to Nebraska and won a couple of national championships. And a funny story, one of the great Utah games I've ever had was a few years ago. Utah went up to Austin Stadium in Eugene and just ran Oregon off the field 62-20, gave them their worst loss in school history. Well, if you've ever been to Austin Stadium, the, the, the coach's box sits right next to the press box, our broadcast booth, as it does in a lot of places, and the restroom's right behind, which is a broadcaster's dream, right outside the visitor's press box broadcast booth. So I'm going to the bathroom right before, the, right before kickoff. Guy walks in right next to me at the other urinal, and I look over, and it's Oregon offensive coordinator, Scott Frost. <laughs> 
I walk to wash my hands because, you know, there's no conversation at the urinal. So we were washing our hands together. I go, hey, Scott, Bill Riley, play-by-play voice for the University of Utah. He goes, nice to meet you, Scott Frost. I said, he said, uh, I said, you're not going to believe this, but uh, about 22 years ago, I used to do your high school games. He goes, get out of here. I said, Wood River, Nebraska, KHAS Radio. You guys were unbelievable. And here's how, I, here's how you'll know. Your mom called all the plays. He goes, holy cow, you did. <laughs> That's great. So Scott Frost is my high school. And then probably the best athlete I've ever covered and in, in, in known in college is Eric Weddle. Just retired from the Los Angeles Rams. Uh, he came to Utah, had one other really scholarship offer out of, out of, uh, out of Rancho Cucamonga High School in, in Southern California was Montana. And uh, he got to Utah, started as a freshman at corner, moved to safety back to corner. Um, he did everything Kyle Whittingham ever wanted or needed. He played some Wildcat quarterback, threw touchdown passes, returned punts, returned kicks, was a corner, was a safety. They lined him up a defensive end one game to rush the passer. He was unbelievable, and then he went on to have an unbelievable career with the Chargers and the Ravens, but he was probably the best all-around football player I've ever covered, and to this day, and he and I have remained friends. I met him when he was an 18-year-old freshman on campus. He's 35, 36 year old, years old now. He's the same guy he was then, which makes him great. Those, that, that story about Scott Frost is incredible. That, that's really good. <laughs> Um, all right, guys, uh, we've got time for one more question, and I, I want to close with this. Um, if you can recall as many details as possible, tell us about the moment that you got the call, you found out you were going to be the voice of the program where you are now. You guys are in, in great positions right now. You're all broadcasting for well-respected programs around the country. You've all talked for a little while about the, the wonderful games and the athletes that you've been able to cover. Do you remember the moment when you got the call and the emotions that swept over you when you found out, and, and Paul, we'll start with you, you're going to call games for the Ohio State Buckeyes? I remember it very clearly. It was the summer of 1998, and I'm working in my hometown of Cincinnati at WLW Radio doing a University of Cincinnati football and basketball, and it just verbally agreed to a new contract to remain at the radio station. Uh, but the programming or the program director uh, was supposed to give me the written contract to sign, and he didn't. He kept slipping up on it. I get a call from um, our executive producer at the Ohio State Network, who I had worked with in the late 70s, my first job in radio. He calls me and he says, uh, they're considering making a change with the Ohio State job. Was I interested? And I said, well, of course, and came to Columbus, interviewed, um, Within 24 hours, the general manager had sent me uh, a letter outlining the job. And I was in a position of having to make a decision on what I felt both were two very, very good jobs. I uh, was in the middle of selling a house at the same time in Cincinnati. Um, and over the course of a couple of weeks and talking with my parents, talking with close friends and trying to make a decision. And Ed Douglas, who was the executive director, kept sweating me for a decision. And I was leaving, I was actually going to substitute and do a Cincinnati Red series on the radio in San Diego. I was filling in for Joe Nuxall. And I told Ed, I said, when I come back from San Diego, I'll have a decision for you. And I came back and told him I would accept the job. Uh, what got to be difficult, I couldn't say anything about it for two weeks uh, because it was involving a personnel change in which somebody was being let go. 
uh, I had to go to my general manager in Cincinnati and let him know I was leaving, but couldn't tell him where I was going. Uh, the only thing I could say was outside of the market. It wasn't to a competitor as far as a company. And uh, so I couldn't really tell anybody. And finally, when it became public, uh, just the reaction I got from people was amazing. It was even more overwhelming than I could have ever imagined. Yeah. Lays, what about you? Yeah, I remember it vividly. It wasn't all that long ago, five years. Um, June 18th, 2015, I was actually broadcasting a Flying Squirrels game, double-A game in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, on a place called City Island, Pennsylvania. Don't know if anyone is familiar with that, but that's where the Washington Nationals double-A affiliate plays, the Harrisburg Senators. And we had gone through a long interview process. It started with a Skype round, and it had been then a in-person visit to campus and uh, the whole thing had gone on for about four to six weeks just long enough to get your hopes up uh, uh, obviously i was in the minor leagues looking to make a massive jump in terms of relevance and, and in terms of the platform so you know i was kind of living and dying every time my phone rang um, for quite a few days I, I knew that it was probably down to just a couple three guys at the most so i'm also trying to do the minor league season. So I've got games every day and we're on a road trip. So we're busing um, different places. Uh, side note on that, I do remember doing my Skype interview from a hotel room in Portland, Maine, uh, and not a nice one, trying to uh, <laughs> negotiate the sailboat picture behind me to make it look somewhat professional and big time. I don't think I pulled it off. But anyway, we get to about the ninth inning. Yeah, it's the ninth inning of the game and I get a text from Chris Ferris, who is of course the head of audio at Learfield IMG College, and it said, have your closer get this thing over and then give me a call. And <laughs> I that was probably a good sign. And there have been a number of times in my baseball career where I've smacked the table and it's like, throw strikes, come on. Um, so our guys having a little trouble closing out the lead that we had at the time, so I'm getting pretty frustrated in my call, but ultimately does. And, and uh, City Island, the ballpark there, you can step out of the radio booth and there's a uh, – patio or kind of a veranda type thing that looks out over the rivers and uh, I called Chris Ferris and uh, you know he immediately told me or actually they had had me done a, a do a mock game Paul actually you'll get a kick out of this they had had Mike Burnup my analyst and I uh, do a video round um, of Virginia Tech's win over Ohio State off a monitor just to see if we would have chemistry and I hadn't called football in a while and I think they wanted to see if I could do it and in any way and Chris opened the conversation by saying, you know, yeah, you did okay with that. Um, it was certainly not glowing praise by any means. Uh, and then he said, and we're going to go ahead and offer you the voice uh, or the job, the role as voice of the Hokies. And I was like, Chris, I remember vividly saying, Chris, you buried the headline there. I don't care about my performance. On it. <laughs> as long as I got the job. Um, so, yeah. And then like Paul was saying, I couldn't tell anybody for a number of days. I mean, obviously, yeah my parents and my family and, and a, a few friends, but yeah, it wasn't public for a while because he had offered and then you go through all of this background checks and all these different things and uh, took about another week until they finally announced it on the June 23rd, 2015. That's a, that's great memory. Um, details I'm sure you'll never forget no, many, no matter how many years go by. Uh, Bill, what about you? My, mine was a unique journey because <laughs> I was the play-by-play -play voice of the Utes after a long-time voice retired, and uh, it was back in the day where flagship stations were the rights holders. 
You guys, some of you guys can remember that. I'm sure Paul does. But we still are, so yeah. The MGs and, and the CBSs and, and so the Foxes came in. But a lot of the flagship radio stations held the rights. And uh, the longtime play-by-play voice retired. And, and my boss is like, you know, the job will be yours if you want it. I'm great. great. And I, I did a great job, I thought. And everybody, good returns and things like that. But then the next year, the university bid it out. And uh, as you guys know, universities have final say. And, and uh, the director of athletics at the time uh, wanted to give somebody within his department uh, a crack at being the play-by-play voice. Somebody that didn't have a lot of experience, but it was kind of their, their dream to do it. So after doing it for a year as the voice of the Utes, I lost the job for a couple of years, which was tough because it was a dream job of mine. I was living the dream um, but you know, and you guys know, sometimes it's tough in our business to, to bite your tongue and not say anything and keep that good stiff upper lip. But after a couple of years, uh, the guy that was in the position, they decided to make a change and, uh, go back to me and, uh, the folks at, uh, it was at the time CBS had the rights and, and I was pretty close with their general manager at the time. And I remember him calling me up and saying, I'm sorry you had to go through this for a couple of years. It was never really our decision or call, but uh, would you like to be the voice of the Utes again? And of course, the answer was a pretty easy one for me. And 11 years later, I'm heading into my 12th. And so, yes, uh, I kind of had to earn it. I got a taste of it for a minute and then it got away. And then I've been back in the position and like all of us, I hope I don't have to, uh, I hope I don't have to fight for it again. I hope I do a good enough job that they like me. Well, we'll just say that you took the Michael Jordan route. You went off to, to play baseball for a couple of years and then came <clears> back, right? That's exactly <laughs> Something right. like that. Um, all right, guys. Well, we, we are out of time. Thank you all so much for your stories, for, for being on with us here today. John Laser at Virginia Tech, Paul Keels, Ohio State, Bill Riley at Utah. Thank you all. Stay healthy, stay safe, and uh, look forward to hearing many more of your calls in the years ahead. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on Carol. She's more focused on hitting a high note than the car in front of her. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates Northbrook, Illinois.